listening to Ohio V, the world, an Ohio history podcast. The only podcast dedicated exclusively to the history of the Buckeye State. Subscribe to the show on iTunes and Stitcher. Don't forget to rate and review us. Join the conversation now at Facebook. Now, here's your host, Alex Hasty. Welcome back, everybody. It's episode eight, Ohio versus conventions. Today, we're talking about the history of political conventions in Ohio. We'll discuss six different conventions that took place here in the Buckeye State. This week is the Democratic National Convention, which is supposed to be in Milwaukee, hugely important swing state of Wisconsin in this election. But this week, it will be done virtually, with the networks covering an hour or two in primetime Speeches from home, no cheering crowds, no balloons dropping, no state delegates partying on the convention floor. The virus has stopped the American tradition of political conventions until 2024. It sucks. I mean, so much about 2020 does suck, but I love watching the conventions. Ever since uh, 1988, the first one I remember, I remember Ann Richards and the, the governor of Texas uh, calling, you know, calling out George Bush, poor George, he was born with a silver foot in his mouth. Or at the Republican convention, George Bush's famous, read my lips, no new taxes. I've never missed a convention on TV. And they're just the best for a political junkie like myself. And in this cycle, there won't be conventions. At least not the political conventions that we're used to. But as I said, there have been a total of six major Republican or Democratic presidential political conventions in the state of Ohio. Don't forget, everybody, to rate and review the show. Uh, it takes two seconds. If you're on iTunes, scroll down on your phone. Give us that five-star review and, and, and let us know your thoughts on the show. really helps move us up the rankings. So the convention used to be where the party picked the candidate. There were no primaries until well into the 20th century. Everyone across the country would just meet at the convention. The nominations would go you know, multiple ballots, multiple days. President Garfield was selected on the 36th ballot um, in, in 1880. Uh, we'll talk about the Democratic Convention of 1880 that took place in Cincinnati. But it's crazy. One of those elections we'll talk about also is 1924. Uh, we'll talk about the, the uh, Republican Convention in Cleveland. But the Democrats that year went 103 ballots. Their convention was 16 days long. Um, just a disaster for them, actually. That's the record, 103 ballots that I'm aware of. But without any traditional conventions this year, we're just going to have to make do for me talking about these six uh, major party conventions that were held in Ohio. We'll start with the Democratic Convention in Cincinnati in 1856, just prior to the Civil War. We'll go all the way up to the 2016 Republican Convention at Quicken Loans Arena in Cleveland with then-candidate Donald Trump. You know, nowadays, Trump uh, officially canceled his planned acceptance speech at an outdoor rally in Jacksonville, Florida, a couple weeks back. That pretty much ended anything that would resemble a conventional convention. Uh, this year. One of the major losses of the conventions not being um, as long or as televised or as covered is really the opportunity for new voices in the party to be heard. Mike O'Neill, our friend from the Obama White House, he made that important observation to us when we spoke. Uh, You can go listen to that interview from episode four, Ohio versus the campaign. But like Mike said, um, the conventions are a huge platform for rising stars in either party uh, to reach the entire country. You know, much like Barack Obama, then a candidate for U.S. Senate in Illinois, he made his famous speech uh, in prime time at the 04 Democratic Convention in Boston. 
introducing himself to the American people, or Ronald Reagan, in Kansas City in 1976, invited on stage after Ford had accepted his nomination to make an off-the-cuff speech about the danger of nuclear weapons that helped launch his successful run in 1980. And that's what we're going to miss from this virtual convention year, is you know possibly the next president of the United States uh, coming out of nowhere. So today we've got six guests, uh, a couple of repeat guests from earlier this season, some guests from seasons past, and some new guests to talk about political conventions. We're walking into the smoke-filled room. We're hitting the convention hall floor. It's episode eight, Ohio versus conventions. Poor George. He can't help it. He was born with a silver foot in his mouth. Read my lips. that we live in a world in which the great powers have poised and aimed at each other horrible missiles of destruction. I say to them tonight, there is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. first part of the show is going to focus on the presidency of James Buchanan, our 15th president, and arguably our worst president. Our last show, we deemed Andrew Johnson to be the worst president, but Buchanan's right there with him. Uh, many cite his presidency as the reason the country fell apart and fell into civil war. His just complete lack of decision making. Um, and we'll talk today with freelance journalist and author Robert Strauss. Uh, Robert is a former professor at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, has written for the New York Times, the LA Times, Sports Illustrated, uh, lives in Philadelphia, the Philadelphia Inquirer, and the Daily News. Robert's the book of the entertaining and really funny book, Worst Period, President Period Ever, period. James Buchanan, The Presidential Rating Game and the Legacy of the Least of the Lesser Presidents. Uh, Robert looks at, at not just Buchanan, who it's really a, bi a Buchanan biography, uh, who's from Pennsylvania, just like uh, Robert's from, uh, but also talks about how we rank our presidents uh, and, and some of the other presidents that are down there at the bottom of the list. But James Buchanan had a great resume. And when he comes into the 1856 Democratic Convention held in downtown Cincinnati, the first convention ever held uh, in Ohio, first convention really held anywhere in the West, and it was this Kansas-Nebraska Act and really the battle over slavery and abolition. Uh, at that time, Franklin Pierce sends him out to, to England to be the ambassador, really the, the primo ambassadorship in, in the country at the time, uh, to get him away. But it really helps his candidacy. We talk with Robert about James Buchanan's amazing resume, looked like he might be a, good, a very good president, uh, and the Kansas-Nebraska Act and how that led to Buchanan getting the nomination. He started out in the Pennsylvania legislature when he was young, and then he got elected to the, to the House, and he was uh, elected to the Senate. He, he served as uh, Secretary of State under Polk. He was, as, he was the ambassador to Russia, and he was the ambassador to Great Britain. Uh, so, you know, that's and, – and, and, and two presidents offered to nominate him to the Supreme Court, which he refused because he really wanted to be president. The big 
discussion, which would have, which will be like coronavirus this time or, or, or something like that, uh, was about the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which was a which was a, a horrendous piece of legislation, but but uh, it was passed in, in hopes that it was going to save the union, and it was going to allow uh, Kansas and Nebraska were were you know presumably the next states coming in. Nebraska was, and Kansas was, but but you know in any case, it, it was going to allow uh, each state to decide whether it be a slave state, which was abrogating previous uh, uh, compromises that that you know said that. Slavery was essentially a north-south issue. Uh, so Buchanan being in England, and uh, you know he was in England because Pierce wanted him far away as a competitor. It, it allowed him not to say anything about it. And then uh, you know he comes back, and, and and there's this convention. This first convention in Ohio's history was held at Smith and Nixon's Hall in Cincinnati. Smith & Nixon was a piano company. They'd built a, a really big music hall uh, in, in the city, which was then, the Queen City, the sixth largest uh, metropolis in the, in the country. It was very accessible by rail. It was right on that north-south divide during this contentious time, uh, following a pretty lackluster presidency from Democrat Franklin Pierce. Pierce is in the running when the gavel strikes on June 2nd, 1856. We talk with our author and guest Robert Strauss, biographer of James Buchanan, about how Buchanan gets that nomination. It was in Cincinnati, the furthest west it had ever been. And the, the, the great figures, or at least of the time, where Pierce was still uh, uh, there, he was president. I mean, it's rare that, that uh, a president gets uh, you know, uh, relegated to second rank. But there's Stephen Douglas, sort of the progenitor of the Kansas-Nebraska Act. The convention goes to this many ballots. I believe it was the 16th ballot, but... But it, it, anyway, it was in the teens. And finally, I think they sort of say, well, you know what? We're going to win anyway. The Whig Party is dissipated. There's these two other parties, the Know-Nothings and the Republicans. So why not just let, let you know, the old boy run? Ms. Robert details, you know, the Democrats were in a great spot. They were up against the newly formed Republican Party running their first national candidate uh, and also a party called the Know-Nothings. That we'll talk with Robert about uh, a very interesting, uh, very xenophobic and really uh, racist party. But the Democrats were the most established party in the race and really seemed uh, to be on their way to yet another Democratic president. And after choosing James Buchanan at the convention in Cincinnati, we talked to Robert about his opponents in that fall election. This little party gets started, the Republicans taking many Whigs with them. And and uh, they don't really know who to nominate. The, 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 the titular candidate would be William Seward, a, a, a senator from New York. But he looks over and says, you know, this is a new party. I mean, uh, if I run now, I, I might have, I'll spend my time doing something that I won't win. It won't even get on the ballot in the South. They, they do something you, you wouldn't believe could possibly happen. They pick a celebrity to run for president. <laughs> John Fremont. Uh, he, was a, he was the guy who... Uh, he was called the Pathfinder, and he he and Kit Carson mapped out the, the uh, all the trails to the West. This other party starts, and and they're the American Party, but most people call them the Know Nothing Party. And you're not going to believe this: anti-immigrant. You know, who could possibly think that there'd be a party like that? Anyway, so so, uh, but the immigrants they're against are Catholics, and they're against the Irish and the Germans coming in and take taking their jobs from overseas. You know, somehow thinking like uh, the Pope is going to 
set up quarters at 17th in Pennsylvania or something. I don't know. They couldn't find anybody to run on this crazy platform, except there was a guy who really wanted to be president and was really pissed off, and it was Millard Fillmore. And I could not find a word that Millard Fillmore wrote against Catholics, you know, or said, but he wanted to be president. This is the way he was going to do it. So uh, the Democrats really, uh, really had just a, a huge leg up. I mean, you know, the, the, they were both in the South and the North. If, if Buchanan could carry Pennsylvania alone, and he ended up carrying a few more states uh, in the North, you know, they, were, they were going to win. The country does fall into a civil war. All the southern states secede from the Union. Uh, Buchanan is not asked to run again in 1860. President Lincoln wins. Uh, we, Robert shares a story just about how clueless Buchanan was. Uh, the story about a letter he sends to President Lincoln uh, on one of the darkest days of the first year of the war. I can just imagine Lincoln getting it and being so excited, like maybe his predecessor is going to offer him some advice, uh, you know, some some words of encouragement. Um, Instead, it's just about some stuff, some books he left at the White House. Four day after, or the same day as one of his best friends, a former senator, the representative he knew from uh, from Oregon, dies in battle. The only the only sitting congressman ever to die in battle, and and he and so he's distraught, and, and you know he opens this letter, and it's a letter from Buchanan asking for some books he left in the White House, you know, that were valuable to him or something. And you know, say hello to Mrs. Mrs. Lincoln while you're at it. And it was and they're like, if you could, I, it's, it's like leave him on the doorstep and my friend will pick him up and bring him to me in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where I live. Or I, I remember the, it, it, the exact way he wanted him to come. But it was about these books, you know, so it, it completely oblivious to the Civil War, for God's sakes. James Buchanan, like we said, Robert's book, Worst Period, President Period Ever. You need to go check that out. There's a link in the show notes to the book. Uh, he believes Buchanan the worst ever. So do many other historians. But why is Buchanan considered the worst president ever? It's his indecisiveness, not just wrong decisions, but uh, his indecisive nature, the inability to make that crucial decision. Um, he also plays a role in, in kind of backroom deals, the the terrible Dred Scott decision with, with Chief Justice and super racist Roger Taney, uh, right, as he, uh, right before he takes office. Uh, a number of different things. John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry, his response to that. You can go back and listen to last season's Ohio vs. the Abolitionists, uh, where we talk about Ohio native John Brown and his ill-fated raid on the armory in Harper's Ferry, trying to spark a, a slave rebellion. Uh, but we talk with Robert about why he thinks James Buchanan, our 15th president, is our worst president ever. I do think he's the worst president. There's a uh, C-SPAN uh, did a uh, survey of uh, historians, all the ones that you know, Doris Kearns Goodwin, all the people who appear on TV, that Buchanan was by far still the worst president, even in their minds. His major thing when he comes out of the election is that I'm going to solve slavery. He wasn't going to necessarily abolish slavery, but he's going to figure out a way to have the country whole. But anyway, so this Dred Scott case comes out, decided two days after he gets inaugurated. It's a disaster, a complete disaster. You know, Scott is, Tony says he couldn't sue because he was black, because he wasn't a citizen. And so then every state was a slave state. And uh, people, you know, people just stopped. They're, you know, just like, that's like the uh, coronavirus. Everything just stopped. And the, there was a precipitous depression 
in in 1857, uh, you know, essentially caused by him. And he he decided he would just let it go. He says, well, you know, I mean, uh, uh, whatever I do is wrong, you know, uh, so I'm just not going to do anything. So, uh, you know, he, he lets that go. And then then there's, uh, you know, there's uh, starting fighting now in Kansas. It says the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Now there are people who are coming in, slave uh, slave owners and not. Uh, a, a previous governor uh, appointed by Pierce there resigns and he decides I'm not going to do anything. Let them let them just fight it out. I mean, there's two capitals in Kansas, you know. I mean, just imagine like like uh, you know, Beto O'Rourke starts a, a western uh, Texas and has a capital in El Paso. You know, the rival to one in Austin. That's essentially what it was. So he he doesn't do anything there. And and, and onto the final thing of not final things of not wanting to go after John Brown and. In, in Harper's Ferry until Robert E. Lee and says, we've got to do something about this guy to secession. And he says, I can't, uh, as president, I can't do anything about secession. We just have to let it go. So his indecision uh, constantly uh, uh, thwarts every other action. If you were to win the nomination, they'll say you're too young, too liberal, too gay to be commander in chief. You are young, you are liberal, you are gay. How will you respond? I'll respond by explaining where I want to lead this country. Uh, people will elect the, the person who will make the best president. And uh, we have had excellent presidents who have been young. We have had excellent presidents who have been liberal. Uh, I would imagine we probably had excellent presidents who were gay. We just didn't know which ones. You believe that we've had a gay commander in chief? I mean, statistically, it's almost certain. And have, like in your reading of history, like, do you believe you know who they were? My gaydar doesn't even work that well in the present, let alone uh, retroactively. But uh, one can only assume that's the case. That clip was from Mayor Pete Buttigieg, a very serious contender for the 2020 Democratic nomination, talking about how he believes that we've certainly had a gay president in the past. He refuses to, to name names there. But most historians, if that were asked that question, would point to, to James Buchanan as being possibly our first gay president. We did a little digging on that. We asked Robert about it. Where does that, that come from? Uh, it's definitely a rumor that we've heard before, and it's it's not really here nor there, but it's certainly a point of interest to historians when they discuss James Buchanan. You know, one thing we have to remember is that people lived in a different manner then. John Adams and Ben Franklin went on a trip to try to uh, assuage the, the British generals just before the war, and they were in the same bed at every inn. And, uh, you know, the big contention was that Franklin wanted the window open and, and Adams wanted to close. But, but in any case, uh, that's how people lived. There wasn't that much talk about Buchanan except for uh, the, this one guy, William King, who was, uh, he probably was, King probably was gay, but he, he, he eventually became the vice president under Pierce and died before he could even take office. He was the founder of Selma, Alabama, as a slave-trading bastion. King County in, uh, in uh, Washington, where Seattle is, was named after him. And then about 20 years ago, the, uh, the uh, people in King County changed the name to honor uh, Martin Luther King instead of William King. Anyway, he was supposedly Buchanan's boyfriend, quote-unquote, because they roomed together a lot in, in Washington. But they had various jobs, and, and uh, King went away, and they wrote together. And, and apparently, Harriet Lane and, and, uh, and uh, King's niece destroyed all their letters. Uh, so that's where the rumor generally comes from. But, but Buchanan had a, had a girlfriend who killed herself, presumably killed herself with drugs. 
back when he was young. And, you know, so it's hard to say that he never dated her because his fiance, she was the daughter of presumably the richest guy in, uh, in Pennsylvania. And anyway, they had a breakup. Presumption is that she killed herself. And she is some people say that uh, she killed herself because Buchanan was gay. And some say she killed herself because she was pregnant and didn't, was not seeing Buchanan anymore. So, you know, it's, it's, it's all in how you look at it, I suppose. We're going to tackle these conventions in, in chronological order. We move forward to 20 years to 1876, the very controversial election that we covered in great detail in episode six, Rutherford B. Hayes versus the world. And this was the, the convention in Cincinnati, the Republican convention that nominated Hayes, surprisingly. Uh, he certainly was a dark horse candidate. It was held at the Cincinnati Exposition Center in the Over the Rhine neighborhood, a beautiful place that still exists today. It's known as the Cincinnati Music Hall. It's the home of the symphony orchestra. Uh, I've seen some concerts there from Washington Park. Uh, really one of the most beautiful buildings in the state of Ohio. I implore you to go check that out. Um, just so cool. It was built around that time. Um, but Hayes comes into it as the governor of Ohio and, and not really a, a major candidate. Uh, he's thrown his hat in the ring. The people from Ohio are going to support him. Uh, we talk with our guest from that episode, uh, Mr. Dustin McLaughlin, how the two biggest candidates, Roscoe Conkling, Senator, and Senator James Blaine of Maine, how their, um, their followers just cannot get enough of a majority. They hate each other, and neither side will, will cave in, and suddenly a third candidate emerges. That's Delaware, Ohio's native Rutherford B. Hayes. Yeah, he's the dark horse. It's, it's hard to know how much Cincinnati played to his advantage, other than the fact that he would have had more uh, support um, outside the walls, uh, some of the people who were just there as spectators. Ohio is chosen less for Hayes, of course, and more because of the importance of Ohio in a general election. He does sit it out. You know, he's in Columbus. He refuses to go uh, there. His son goes, Webb. Uh, his other family members are not there. He's the guy who, what they would call a favorite son of Ohio at the time. He knew the Ohio delegation would go there and at least on the first night ballot for all their votes to him. Um, again, his friend William Henry Smith is telling him, you've got a shot at this because your two can't, the two front runners are James Blaine and Roscoe Conkling who hate each other. And Robert Ingersoll is the one who gave a speech for Blaine in the convention and really sorts of, sort of electrifies the crowd. I mean, he thought that he would be nominated that night, but due to, a, due to lighting in the hall, they decided to wait until the next day for the vote. Perhaps, perhaps some emotions cooled at that point. And uh, Blaine does not get the, the numbers he needs to be nominated. And over time, you see through these ballots that Conkling supporters are not going to give in to Blaine and Blaine's supporters are not going to give in to Conkling. So they're looking for another candidate, someone who, who could um, unite these, these, these groups. And it does become Hayes. And a lot of the reason why it's Hayes is because He's not objectionable, really, to anybody. He uh, is from Ohio, which is an important swing state. Has that Civil War record, the congressional record, and things like that, that that put him there. But in reality, he is either one of two things. You can call him the uh, compromise candidate, 
or you can call him really the anti-Blaine candidate, uh, the guy who all of the non-Blaine supporters wanted just because they didn't want Blaine and they knew some of the other guys weren't going to make it. But one way or the other, uh, Hayes becomes the guy who everyone else settles on. Four years later in 1880, the Democrats come to Cincinnati, and they're in that same spot, the uh, Cincinnati Exposition Center on 14th and Elm Street in downtown Cincinnati and over the Rhine. Our guest, next guest is Mike Albright. He's been on the show many times, friend, uh, amateur historian, and he knows a hell of a lot about the 19th century. And he came on to talk about Winfield Scott Hancock, another Pennsylvania native, uh, really one of the most overlooked, almost presidents of all time, a Civil War hero uh, that really changes, nearly changes the fortunes of the Democrats who had not had a president since Buchanan's terrible presidency uh, and would only have one president from Buchanan all the way to 1912. We talked with Mike just about who was General Winfield Scott Hancock, the hero of Gettysburg. Winfield Scott Hancock was the best corps commander the Union Army ever had. A lot of historians would agree. Although he was a lifelong Democrat, he played a significant role in the Battle of Gettysburg in terms of where the battle was fought. After the first day he arrived, Meade uh, anticipated fighting the battle a little bit further east, uh, but uh, because of some engagement, um, both sides found themselves at Gettysburg. And uh, that night after that first day at the Battle of Gettysburg, Meade met with uh, his commanders, including Hancock, at a council of war. And uh, he asked them, should we stay and fight here or should we fight on a different uh, location? And the first person to speak up was Hancock and said, General, this is, this is fantastic ground. Uh, we have to fight here. For many military historians, uh, Meade's position and his uh, situation at Gettysburg, he was probably the best fixed fortification at the time. But the fact that it, things played out the way they did was significant. And Hancock was injured at Gettysburg. He gave him a, a lifelong injury that uh, would uh, bother him. It eventually would take him out of the war. I was on third day, he was at Pickett's Charge and uh, he was on a horse nonetheless, which was not a very good uh, place to be. Um, but when he was told, he, you know, General, you need to get down, we can't spare you. He is alleged to have said there are sometimes uh, when a corps commander's life just doesn't count. Of course, he got injured. And One of the closest people to ever almost being president was New York Governor Samuel Tilden. Again, if you listen to our uh, episode six of Rutherford B. Hayes vs. the World, we talk about the controversial election where uh, Tilden won the popular vote by huge numbers. And then uh, due to some controversy in some southern states, the election was taken away from him. Uh, but it's in 1880. Four years later, it's figured that Tilden definitely will be in the running as someone who many Democrats think should be president anyways. We talked earlier this year with Todd Arrington, the site manager at the James Garfield uh, historic site, about just how did uh, the 1880 breakdown, how did Tilden not get that nomination as it goes to General Winfield Scott Hancock? Well, the, the Democratic convention is in Cincinnati. The Republican convention that year was far more dramatic with, you know, the, the multiple, you know, 36 ballots before they finally settle on a candidate. The Democratic, uh, the real drama with the Democratic convention that year was just trying to figure out, okay, who's going to be the candidate? And would Samuel Tilden, who had won the popular vote in 1876, but been denied the presidency because of, by the Electoral Commission, of which James Garfield was a member, would Samuel Tilden run again in 1880? 
So the Democratic Party is really kind of in this holding pattern, trying to see what Tilden is going to do. If Tilden wants to run again, of course, the Democrats are going to say he should run He should be able to run again and basically claim the prize to which he was rightfully elected four years ago. Um, so, Til but Tilden kind of plays coy and Tilden wants, basically Tilden wants the party to come to him and say, we must have you run. He doesn't want to say, I'm a candidate. And, uh, and so the real drama at the, uh, the Democratic convention is trying to figure out is Tilden running or not. And he continues to play coy and he, you know, he, he says he's not a candidate, but then he starts talking to people already about being on a ticket. Uh, as the vice presidential candidate uh, who, who might be interested in doing that. And, and so all the drama really is, is Tilden running or not. So by the time that the convention, the, the Democratic convention finally kicks off, Tilden has, has really not said one way or the other. And the Democrats decide finally they've got to find somebody else. And that's when they start really taking a hard look at Winfield Scott Hancock, who is still on act, you know, an active duty army general. He's the, the commander of the Department of the Atlantic. Um, he's one of the most decorated Union Civil War soldiers of all. Um, you know, he's uh, originally from uh, from Pennsylvania, but of course now lives in New York. New York, just like it was in 1876 when Tilden was the governor there, is the main electoral prize at this point. So nominating a candidate who can win New York is absolutely critical to both parties. Uh, and so they eventually select... Uh, Hancock on, I believe it's the second ballot. We've talked about the strategy used by Republicans after the war, all the way up until William McKinley's election some 30 years after the war. This idea of waving the bloody shirt, to vote as you shot, the idea that all, not all Democrats were Confederates, but all Confederates were Democrats. This was used in every election from 1864 all the way up through McKinley's first election in 1896, 32 years. But it was not a strategy that was going to work as well in 1880. We talked to Mike Albritton about why that is and why General Hancock, the Democratic nominee, kind of negates that traditional argument. This is where it helped that Hancock was a Democrat because throughout the Gilded Age, throughout the post-Civil War era, if you're a Democrat and you're running against a Republican, uh, you're always on the defensive as far as party loyalty or country loyalty. The phrase is called waving the bloody shirt. Right. Uh, you didn't, you know, you didn't support the union. You didn't fight for the union. You got to vote Republicans. We're, we're pro-U.S. We're pro-union. The Democrats are the party of traitors. Well, and that would, that, so if you're a Democrat, you're always on the defensive for that. Things changed, though, in the 1880 election. The Democrats in Cincinnati uh, nominated one Winfield Scott Hancock. You cannot say he didn't fight for the union. Uh, he ran against Garfield. Uh, under the Republican ticket. Uh, and Garfield had an impressive war record too, but nothing, nothing compared to Winfield Scott Hancock. Yeah, you can't really wave the bloody shirt at him. Absolutely not. As we wrap up the 1880 Democratic Convention and the presidential uh, campaign of, of Winfield Scott Hancock, Mike Albritton talks about you know why they picked Cincinnati. They had success there 20, 24 years earlier with Buchanan. This idea that it was that north-south divide, Cincinnati, this border, the southernmost northern city. And it was a very close election. You can go back and listen to our episode, uh, one of my favorite ones we've done, episode three, James Garfield versus the world. But Garfield wins the popular vote by like 10,000 votes less than that. Uh, over 4 million votes cast for, for each uh, candidate. 
And if, you know, 10,000 votes flip in New York to Hancock, the election would have gone uh, Hancock's way. He would have won by one electoral vote. We talked with Mike Albritton just about why Cincinnati and the closeness of the Hancock-Garfield election. There is a reason why the convention was held in Cincinnati, so close to the South. One of the bravest Union soldiers to have ever fought uh, when he was governor uh, running the territories that that the Union occupied in the Confederacy, uh, Hancock ran some of those territories. And he took a stance of being light on Southerners. Uh, he would label it as favoring habeas corpus and protecting you know, civil rights. Of course, not black rights, but we're talking about uh, white Southerners. And so he was very popular in the South, very popular. Uh, he's popular in the North. So he was made a very formidable candidate. And it really, really turned politics upside down by having this Democrat uh, being the bravest Union soldier, best corps commander, uh, running against uh, a Republican. It, it, it took away the defensive that the Democrats were always on in terms of waving the bloody shirt. It, it was one of the closest elections in history. Uh, it ended up being uh, actually the closest elect presidential election in American history, I believe, was uh, Garfield versus Hancock. In popular vote, 5,000 to 10,000 votes had gone the other way. Winfield Scott Hancock uh, would have been elected president, and you uh, would not have uh, Garfield, uh, of course, losing his life later on. century and we talk about the convention the republican convention of 1924 this is supposed to be the coronation of a second term for the popular warren g harding of marion ohio he'll be the subject of our next episode very much looking forward to to discussing harding's controversial presidency but harding dies in 1923 he dies of a heart attack and his vice president calvin coolidge uh, takes the office and, and coolidge silent cal as he was known uh, was very popular as well. There's not a ton of intrigue about who would get the nomination like there has been in our previous conventions. But this one's in Cleveland. It's on the on the mall that they had just built downtown right on Lake Erie at the Cleveland Public Auditorium. It's still there. Uh, but we talk with our guest. We've, he's been on before, Case Western uh, history professor John Grabowski, Cleveland historian. And John talks to us about the 1924 convention and about just how important the city of Cleveland was in the Roaring Twenties. Yeah, in the, in the Roaring Twenties, I think the, the biggest industry in Cleveland is, is steel at that point and products made from steel. The automotive industry in Cleveland is pretty much, we're still doing custom cars here that are built in Cleveland, but more and more it's going to go by the end of the Twenties to you know the big three or the big four or whatever. Uh, but that becomes a major aspect. and. Chemicals, uh, particularly the production of uh, gasoline and petroleum-based products is yep. big. And the same thing is, is, is paint. Uh, Sherwin-Williams and Glidden are major producers. The, the city is, if you look at the city in 1920, it's the fifth largest city in the United States. And the value of its industrial products is fifth largest in the United States. And uh, The other thing that's booming in Cleveland is the real estate industry because you're beginning to see suburban growth, uh, particularly 
we look at uh, Shaker Heights, uh, which becomes a very tony suburb. It's 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 an incredible city uh, if you have money, and, and, <laughs> and if you're working, okay. Uh, and uh, so it's 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 primed for you know a Republican convention in 1924. If you walk around downtown Cleveland on the mall way there, still see these buildings in the Cleveland Public Auditorium, where this 1924 Republican convention that nominated Calvin Coolidge was held. You can fit 12,000 delegates in Cleveland Public Auditorium. It's a huge place. We'll, we'll put some pictures up on the Facebook this week uh, of that 24 convention. We talk with John Grabowski about this historic site. Public Hall, Public Auditorium, there are two buildings. There's actually a music hall that seats about 3,000 people, and then the main auditorium that seats 11,000. And that structure had been planned as part of the mall which is this group plan that's what we call it, the group plan of public buildings, uh, Beaux-Arts style all the way around. It's the fourth building structured. They actually planned to begin it uh, before the First World War, but it didn't start until 1920 and they completed it in 1922. And, and that's, it was when it was completed, it was the biggest convention hall in the country. Yeah. And, and so that's, that's one of the reasons the Republicans ended up here. Already we have sufficiently rearranged our domestic affairs that confidence has returned, business has revived, and we appear to be entering upon an era of prosperity which is gradually reaching into every part of the nation. A major invention in the 1920s revolutionizes entertainment and communication. It's the invention of radio. The 1924 Republican Convention is broadcast live. We just played you that clip from Calvin Coolidge. Um, but he's one, he's listening at home as well. Uh, we talk with John Grabowski about the role of radio to bring this convention to the public. It's experimental, and you know, radio is, is the coming tool. In, uh, it's, it's not pushing out newspapers yet, but it's becoming the, com- becoming the uh, main tool uh, for communication. And there are, they actually do, uh, there are nine cities that the, con- uh, the radio broadcast of the convention goes to, and they're all connected by what was called high-speed, uh, long-distance telephone wires. So they weren't broadcasting the signal through the ether, so to speak. Uh, they were actually uh, passing it along through a telephone lines. And, and that's where Coolidge would listen to the convention. Uh, he listened to it on the radio. He never turned up. Uh, it's, it's an interesting convention because he never turns up here. And if we get to the 36th convention, Al Flandon never turns up in Cleveland either. It's a brand-new hall held you know, to capacity, 11, 11 5, 12,000 people. But it wasn't the only convention, the Republican convention that nominated Calvin Coolidge um, was not the only convention in Cleveland that year. There's two other parties that would have their conventions in Cleveland, including one that would have it in that same public auditorium just weeks later. Because you see there are two other conventions in Cleveland in 1924. There's a socialist convention, a progressive convention that come, and, and they both end up backing Robert LaFollette. And LaFollette is one of the old progressive Republicans who could have been, would have been a candidate against Coolidge. And LaFollette runs fairly well uh, when uh, afterwards. He wins one state. He wins Wisconsin, of course. But uh, there still is this undertow of what we would call classical progressive Republicans who really want to take the government back from the Coolidgeites, who are basically pro-business, hands-off, and whatever else. And uh, and so there, there are three conventions in a row in Cleveland in 1924. There's the Republican convention, the progressive convention, and, and then sort of the, social, the socialist convention. They all 
they'll come together. And the latter two uh, decide that LaFala is going to be the third party candidate. The most interesting battle in Cleveland that summer was for the vice presidential spot. Calvin Coolidge uh, pretty easily wins the nomination. He had become president as vice president after Harding died the year before, and there was no vice president with Coolidge. They actually end up choosing a fellow Ohioan from Marietta, Ohio, Charles G. Dawes, go on to win the Nobel Peace Prize the next year. He, he even wrote a song that would later become a number one pop hit in the U.S. and the U.K. in the 1950s. A really interesting guy, and he's probably ripe for a future episode about himself. But as John Grabowski tells us, he was not the Republicans' first pick in 1924. Frank Loudon, who's governor of Illinois, is, 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 is nominated for vice president. He declines the nomination. <laughs> he backs out. You know, and so there, there are discussions, and I don't know why he backs out. There, there may, there, there, there's some things I've been reading. There, some people were sort of rankled against Coolidge and sort of driving the convention, and so uh, Charles Dawes ends up being the choice. He's from Marietta, Ohio, and he's an interesting guy. He's, he's a joint recipient of uh, the Nobel Prize. Uh, basically, he's helped you know Germans pay off the reparations. There's a the deal yeah. that they make for that, so he he has that sort of thing. And, and looking at his career with, with Coolidge, it's not, not the most congenial pairing, actually, that you find. He wrote one, one major song, and it was turned into a popular song in the 50s. Yeah, like 40, 50 years later, yeah. Yeah, uh, it's just incredible. to our second to last convention, the 1936 Republican National Convention was again held in Cleveland, again held in the public auditorium downtown, but it was a much different time. This was right in the heart of the Great Depression. FDR had been president for one term after destroying Herbert Hoover four years earlier. Hoover and the Republicans were still blamed for the Depression, and the country certainly had not pulled out of it in FDR's first four years, even though he was pretty popular for a lot of his New Deal plans. Uh, but we talked with John Grabowski about you know, Great Depression Cleveland, a town that was hit hard uh, by these economic times. And, and John leads us through just what Cleveland was like in 1936. Cleveland gets hit hard by the Depression. Cyrus Eaton once said that Cleveland was, uh, was hit harder than any other major city, and I, I doubt that. But we we at least had a diversified set of industries. But at, at one point, this is 30% unemployment in, in, in the city during the Depression. And, and steel and everything was down. Trans railroads were down. Transportation was down. And that was the lifeblood of the city. Uh, so the steel mills weren't producing. People didn't have jobs. The automobiles weren't selling. Auto carts weren't being built. Uh, so it's, it, it is a, a bad situation. You have a lot of transients in Cleveland at that point. Uh, but by 30, 36, uh, you know, some of the Rooseveltian New Deal products have come in, and Cleveland's beginning to pick up a little bit. There'll be a second blip in the Depression after the convention. Cleveland in 1936, though, was a town on the upswing. It hit rock bottom in the years leading up to 1936. But the city leaders planned a resurgence. They had, you know, they had this convention coming in. It reminds me a lot of 2016, where they had the, the convention... They had the Cavaliers winning the NBA Finals uh, and really putting Cleveland back on the map. In 1936, one of the things they did was something called the Great Lakes Exposition. 
a kind of World's Fair that ran uh, in, in downtown Cleveland, very close to the public auditorium at the same time as this 1936 Republican convention we're talking about. You can go back and listen to our episode from Season 3, Ohio versus Murder, um, where we talk about the summer of 1936. There was a serial killer on the loose in Cleveland, the Torso Murderer. Uh, that's a fun episode where we also talk about Elliot Ness, who was the uh, police chief in Cleveland at the time, the former Untouchable. Uh, so go back and listen to that one again from Season 3, Ohio versus Murder 3.0 is the name of it. Uh, but we talk with John Grabowski about what was the Great Lakes Exposition and why was Cleveland on the upswing in 1936. But the city fathers, uh, they decide to, uh, to do what Chicago did in 1933. Chicago did a century of progress, a major exhibit to try to pump some money into the economy. So we come up with the Great Lakes Exposition, which is the uh, 100th anniversary of the incorporation of Cleveland as a city. And, and that runs for two years on the lakefront. They built it like 40 days. It's, uh, and it's, it's, it's a minor key, dare I say that, uh, World's Fair. But it attracts about 8 million people over the two years. It's still a question as to whether they made any money on it. Uh, mm-hmm. But it did, did increase the, the uh, I think, the vision of the city. So you had that going on in 36, the same year that the land and bank bandwagon comes into Cleveland. You have the 36 Republican Convention, and ta-da, it's going to be at the public auditorium as well. And as we said earlier, the Republicans were still being blamed for the Great Depression. But a large segment of the, of the population thought that FDR was leading this country away from capitalism into socialism. The massive expansion of the government and government programs and the infrastructure projects and everything that FDR had done in his New Deal was foreign to American politics and to Americans. It's into this void where Alf Landon, the governor of Kansas, kind of a moderate but still a Republican, still someone looking for less government, not more. In just a moment, you'll, you'll hear a clip from Governor Landon we talked with John Grabowski about just who was Alf Landon and how does he get himself the nomination in 1936. Landon is, is not a, a hard, fast business type Republican. He's, he's looking at continuing some of the New Deal initiatives and so forth. He's not, he's not going to say no to something that's working. So he's, he's playing, he's, he's from Kansas for gosh sakes. You know, he doesn't, doesn't have the aura of money hanging around him. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the land, land and bandwagon, when it comes to the Cleveland, it's a covered wagon. So that they're, they're playing this middle America thing. Uh, but they are still, they're still hung up as really creators of, of the Depression. There, well, there is, you know, there is a movement toward the Democratic Party among African-Americans. And, uh, and, and that's, that's really a surprise if you look at the history of the two parties. And, and you know, the Democratic Party is the party of the Solid South. And the so- Solid South has already gone a good way to reclaiming its own white power over any kind of black power there. The African-American population of Cleveland is increasing with the Great Migration. So in 1920, there are 35,000 African-Americans in Cleveland, it'd be 70,000 roughly in 1930. And the question is, how are they going to vote? And there's still a strong tendency to vote with the party of Lincoln. There are some African-Americans in Cleveland, older ones who stay true to the party. But what we see here, um, and there, there's a book uh, by, it's called The Ghetto Takes Shape. It's about uh, the birth of the ghetto in Cleveland. So by 1936, when the convention's going, is that 95% of the blacks in Cleveland are living in one neighborhood, Cedar Central. It's de facto segregated. 
and and some of the people will be running for you know local office, consul office as Republicans, but other African Americans are running as as Democrats. So you're beginning to see that shift. That shift takes a long while, and it really only fully comes into play. Uh, and when I say fully, I mean almost, where you, you find very few black Republicans right. in the 1960s when Carl Stokes is elected to mayor. He's, he's a Democrat and, and, and African American. So this is a time when that, that New Deal coalition, which is kind of interesting because there's immigrants and African Americans that, that are flipping or choosing to vote for the Democratic Party rather than the Republican Party. The battle is on. The Republican National Convention has nominated Governor Alfred Mossman Landon, the Kansas Coolidge, as its candidate for president. The 48-year-old governor first attracted nationwide attention by balancing his state budget despite the Depression. He is a family man, enjoying the company of his father, wife, and three children in his intimate family circle. As Republican candidate, his war cry is economy and common sense. The time has come for a direct attack on the attempted Washington to substitute a tax-eating bureaucracy for a liberal democratic system. Business recovery offers more promise of employment than a thousand wildcat schemes. Many a governor, including Roosevelt, has gone from the governor's mansion to the White House. The Republicans think Alf Landon is the man who will win in November. He is our next president if he can beat Roosevelt. Like we said, Landon is fighting an uphill battle. A lot of people are, are, are in tune with the New Deal policies, Social Security, unemployment benefits. These are new ideas that have proven to be popular with Americans. And Landon, like we said, even though he's a moderate uh, and he accepted much of the New Deal, uh, he criticized its inefficiencies, government waste. Uh, he was an executive who had run the state of Kansas, and and he was the person to push these programs forward. But that falls on deaf ears. FDR would get over 60% of the vote following Landon's nomination in, in Cleveland. And, and Landon would carry only two states, I believe it was Vermont and, and Maine, talking about eight electoral votes. <laughs> FDR gets 523 and Alf Landon suffers one of the biggest landslides in U.S. election history. Well, I don't, you know, I don't think Landon was the most electric of characters. <laughs> and he was, you know, he's running against FDR, who was really out there. And FDR is on a crest. I mean, you know, there's going to be a second little depression that comes along. But right now, things are looking better. And he's providing jobs or work programs. Uh, I, I think it's a combination of two personalities. Yeah, uh, and, uh, and and FDR is by far the more vibrant and more hopeful, uh, and and it's interesting because I think Landon is going to go to hardcore Republicans. They're they're going to vote for him whether they like him or not. Even though Landon is kind of middle of the road in terms of where his policies are. Yeah, uh, he's kind of considered a liberal Republican at the time. Yeah, and you and you're not going to find people who are getting jobs through Roosevelt or whatever else moving toward a Republican at that point. And Hoover is, you know, it's still Hoover who's gotten the blame. As we move on to our final political convention held in the state of Ohio, we move forward 80 years to our most recent election. It's the Republican National Convention in 2016 in Cleveland, Ohio, Quicken Loans Arena. And it was historic. It was the 
convention that would nominate millionaire businessman Donald J. Trump, who would later become our 45th president. We talked with Kyle Kondik, the author of Bellwether, Why Ohio Picks the President. Kyle has been on the show, I don't know, a half a dozen times, probably our our guest with the most appearances. Uh, He's a political analyst, works at the University of Virginia Center for Politics, uh, and, and really runs what's called their called their crystal ball it's a newsletter nonpartisan uh newsletter about american campaigns not just presidential but congressional um campaigns as well and kyle who's an expert on ohio politics he was there he was at both conventions hillary's convention in philadelphia and this convention in 2016 while kyle was at the convention a number of republican luminaries were not uh really displaying this rift in the republican party that Trump's uh, campaign had brought out the moderates, men like John Kasich, who had run against Trump. We talked about him last episode. Uh, the convention's in his own state. He doesn't show up. The Bush family, uh, Jeb Bush, who had been crushed by Trump in the primary, he was the presumptive nominee going into 2015. Um, George W. Bush, the recent president, 43rd president, doesn't show up. His dad, Bush 41, not there. Um, a number of people that were offended by Trump don't show up. And we're not going to get into uh, all of Trump's campaign, all those crazy moments and and his uh, rise to power. It's incredible, very impressive that he was able to pull this off against all these different, uh, you know, experienced politicians. Uh, We all lived it. We remember how he got to this point in Cleveland. Uh, But we'll talk, you know, it's supposed to be giant protests. So many people... uh, Democrats and, and liberals and, and even moderates were offended by so many things that Trump had said and what his campaign was stood for, they thought, uh, that maybe they would show up and try and uh, create violence in downtown Cleveland. I remember police officers I was dealing with on, on cases down here that were gone for that entire week because they were going to be up providing security. Uh, we talked with Kyle just about uh, the convention, the feel on the ground in Cleveland in 2016. Well, it's crazy that, you know, you have John Kasich, the popular Republican governor of Ohio, who, um, you know, basically is a, is a non-entity at, at his own state's convention for his own party. Um, and of course, Kasich had won Ohio in the Republican primary in 2016, but it was the only state that he won. Kasich was not a fan of, of Trump. Um, you know, you also had, um, you know, the Bush family um, is basically, you know, kind of forgotten by, by Republicans at this point in that, you know, Jeb Bush was, you know, was not able to perform very well in that primary that year. Uh, and the Bush family as a whole really does not like Donald Trump. Uh, Ted Cruz speaks at that convention, but he uh, essentially does not endorse Trump during his speech and essentially urges delegates to vote their conscience and is booed off the stage. Uh, so it was a very, it was a very strange event um, but ultimately, I think it was for, for Trump was a successful event uh, and and also, you know, unrelated to Trump, um, just in terms of how the city of Cleveland handled it. There was a lot of thought that it would be uh, it would kind of be like Chicago in 1968, all sorts of protests and, and uh, violence. And, and uh, you know, really, it was it was um, much more tranquil, I think, than, than a lot of people thought. And uh, I think a lot of people came out of it feeling pretty good about how Cleveland had had, uh, had handled it. We asked Kyle about why Mike Pence from Indiana was chosen as vice president, as Trump's running mate. 
and it was an interesting decision and one I really didn't remember, even though it was just four years ago. But we asked Kyle why at that convention Mike Pence was giving the speech as vice presidential nominee and how that worked for Trump. Folks that, you know, some of the Republican Party luminaries who were pro-Trump, namely people like Chris Christie and Newt Gingrich were um, potentially, you know, people who could uh, who could join the ticket, but Pence was, a, was ultimately ended up being a good choice for Trump in that he, he Pence was a uh, established figure in the Republican Party and also someone who is a conservative Christian, uh, and uh, that's such a you know white evangelical Christians are such a, a big part of the Republican coalition. I think Pence reassured some of those folks that, that Trump would have their back on certain issues, and certainly Trump has had a lot of loyalty from those voters both in that election uh, and also. In in terms of his approval rating as he's been president. And as the Trump team arrives in July of 2016 in Cleveland, he's losing in the polls to Hillary Clinton. But it is close. And obviously those polls would prove to be incorrect as we got closer and closer to November. A number of different things would affect those poll numbers in the months leading up to the election. But Donald Trump's definitely got a shot in that summer. Many people can't believe he's there to give that speech um, but it's very possible that he will become president. And this convention was very important uh, to show that he could that he could be presidential, that he could give a speech that could turn some of those undecided voters. Kyle Kondik was there on the floor uh, with actually his dad and his brother. Kyle's originally from the Cleveland area. Uh, and he tells us just about being at the queue in July for the Republican convention of Donald Trump. I was able to bring my dad and my brother to the final night to see Trump's speech because we had some extra um, passes. And uh, so, th- and they were, you know, they had never been to a convention before. And so they were just like really thrilled to be there. Um, and so I, I was with them to watch the president's or the, the then candidate Trump's speech. And um, it, I just thought it was like very dark. <laughs> I mean, it was very, uh, you know, usually that these convention speeches are, um, kind of um, hopeful and forward looking yeah. and, and Trump's definitely was not, although, you know, I think that, that probably there was some appeal there in his sort of criticism of what was going on. Uh, but it was just, a, it was just kind of a weird, it's hard to describe just sort of a weird mood in the arena. We will be a country of generosity and warmth, but we will also be a country of law and order. Our convention occurs at a moment of crisis for our nation. The attacks on our police and the terrorism of our cities threaten our very way of life. America was shocked to its core when our police officers in Dallas were so brutally executed. I have a message to every last person threatening the peace on our streets and the safety of our police. When I take the oath of office next year, I will restore law and order to our country. Believe me. Believe me. In this race for the White House, I am the law and order candidate. And as the Republican convention this year will go virtual as well, 
um, Donald Trump could give almost that exact same speech. Law and order president. He really stole that idea from Richard Nixon in 1968. But not a ton has changed in four years. Uh, and I think you will hear a lot of elements of that, of that clip we just played in his 2020 acceptance speech. As we close here today, you know, Ohio voted uh, Trump by eight points, even though he lost the national uh, popular vote by 2% to Hillary Clinton. It's one of the first times Ohio's ever been this far off the national average, 10 points. And what does it bode for Ohio, which we take pride in being the bellwether, being the, the, the state that really lets the nation know us. Ohio goes, so goes the nation. Is that true anymore? We talk with Kyle Condict about the status of Ohio as the ultimate swing state. I think at least in the short term, you probably would expect Ohio to be a little bit further from the national voting average than that it has been in the past. Big part of the reason for that is well, well, two bit two big reasons. One of one of them I identified in my book, and the other one I did not. The one identified in my book is just that Ohio is less diverse than the nation as a whole. There is a you know significant split between white voters and non-white voters, and that non-white voters are, are generally these days giving Democrats about three quarters of their votes you know, give or take, whereas white voters are, are more of a Republican demographic. White white voters are still a clear majority of voters in the nation, and but they're a bigger majority in, in, in Ohio. And then, and so that was something that, that we sort of knew about, you know, prior to 2016. But one of the things that I didn't quite grasp and, and got stronger in 2016 was this divide amongst white voters with and without a four-year college degree. You know, a long time ago, what you consider to be the white working class, white voters without a college degree was sort of more of a democratic demographic. But over time, it's become more of a Republican one, really became even more Republican in 2016, whereas uh, white voters with a four-year college degree have been more trending democratic uh, and became more democratic in, um, in 2016 as well. And, had, and, and that's the only continued since Trump's election. Uh, but Ohio also has a higher than average percentage of, of white voters who don't have a four-year degree. And so that's a you know, growing Republican demographic and a group that, that Trump really did quite well with, um, better than, than Mitt Romney had in 2012. The fact that Ohio is not very diverse and also has this higher percentage of white voters without a four-year degree, you know, those are two factors that, that push a place toward being a little bit more Republican. And that's what's been happening in Ohio. Uh, I think the state is still winnable for Democrats at the presidential level, but um, you probably would not expect it to vote more Democratic than the nation, which it usually did not do even when it was sort of more of a bellwether state. Um, but you probably would expect it to be at least a few points more Republican than the nation, which is what we saw in 2016. Now, maybe once Trump is off the scene, maybe some of these voting patterns change a little bit. Um, but one of the, the sort of hallmarks of Ohio historically was that, yes, its voting patterns changed, but they usually changed in such ways that continue to make the state pretty reflective of the nation. Maybe that's not going to be true anymore going forward here, but it still seemed like Ohio could could very well be potentially competitive in, in the November election. Now, I don't think Democrats look at Ohio as a state they really need to win, uh, which I think is, is true historically and is specifically true in this election. But I think obviously if Democrats could win Ohio, I think we'd all realize that if they did, the election would be over because no Republicans ever won without this, without Ohio uh, and I think particularly for this president, Ohio is is a crucial state because he needs to really do well in the Rust Belt more generally. And if you don't win Ohio as Republican, you're probably not winning Pennsylvania. You're probably not winning Michigan. You're probably not winning Wisconsin. And yeah. because Ohio's 
typically votes to the right of those to those states. So um, the president cannot take Ohio for granted at all. From Garfield's tomb to the serpent mound, from the big cities to the river towns, first in flight making history. There's so many books you need to see. I like reading, and I like reading. Tippecanoe and Tyler too, from the Queen City to Lake Erie Blue, Edison and a man on the moon. So many books, which will we choose? I like reading. I like reading. Our book recommendation for this episode is Worst Period President Period Ever by Robert Strauss, uh, the subtitle James Buchanan, The Presidential Rating Game and the Legacy of the Least of the Lesser Presidents. Really thank uh, Robert for joining us. I love his book from 2016. We listened to it on Audible, actually, but it's it's available. And there's a link in the show notes. Go buy that book. It's a fun read. Uh, and it's not just about Buchanan and why he was so terrible, uh, but also about some of these other lesser presidents, including Warren G. Harding, who we'll, we will talk about in our next episode uh, in just a couple of weeks. Uh, but Robert talks about writing about failure. That's what this book's really about. He's not writing about Lincoln. He's not writing about George Washington, these great presidents. He's talking about James Buchanan. He's talking about the worst president ever in his mind, in many historians' mind. We talked to Robert just about that idea, uh, what appealed to him about writing about failure. I started freelancing in the early 90s, and my biggest client was the New York Times, and they would always have me write oddball historical things. I, it was it was to go to homes or, 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 or sites of of uh, lesser-known presidents. So when I proposed the, this book to my agent, you know, I, I, I told him, like, the, like this elevator pitch was, uh, uh, you know, uh, half of America thinks Barack Obama is the worst president ever, and half, the other half thinks George Bush is the worst president ever, but neither of them started the Civil War. To write about somebody who failed, you know what I mean? It's a whole different kind of book, and, uh, and I loved it. And so I always imagined you know, like, what would it be like to be around the president when when nobody's watching? I mean, don't you, don't you think it would have been great to see when Barack Obama yelled at his daughter for getting to be in a class or something like that? So that that's the kind of thing that I try to imagine. That'll do it, guys. Thanks again to Robert Strauss, Dustin McLaughlin from the Hayes Home, uh, Garfield site manager Todd Arrington for joining us again. Mike Albritton uh, always brings it. I think this is his third or fourth. Uh, appearance on, on Ohio v. the World, and also John Grabowski, a repeat guest from Case Western University, great Cleveland historian, is always willing to, to help out with the show. And friend of the show, of course, Kyle Condick from the Virginia Center for Politics, uh, joining us yet again. Uh, don't forget, we've got Ohio v. the World t-shirts. Uh, they are for sale. We've been sending them out, mailing them out to fans and listeners. Uh, there's a link in the show notes to our email, Ohio v. the World at gmail.com again just email us at ohiovtheworld at gmail.com uh, free shipping on those $20 for t-shirts and we'll get them out to you in a matter of days just reach out to us with your size and your address uh, and there's multiple platforms in which you can make your donation to the program 
Uh, and we really appreciate all those people buying t-shirts and wearing them and posting them on social uh, social media. They're really comfortable, cool shirts. So go to our Instagram or our Facebook to see uh, pictures of those shirts. Uh, and again, so fun when I drive down the street somewhere and, and see somebody wearing an Ohio V the World t-shirt. So again, just email us, ohiovtheworld at gmail.com. We'll get those out. Enjoy these conventions. They're going to be different. They're going to be weird. Um, but 2020 is different and it's very weird. So it's really par for the course, and we'll see what happens with Joe Biden's convention, and we'll see what happens with Trump having to do a virtual campaign. A guy who thrives at these la- you know large rallies, uh, what's he going to be able to pull off? And the Republican Party uh, on a short time schedule after having to cancel their their convention and their plans in Jacksonville and Charlotte. Our next episode, like we said, is going to be a really fun episode about Warren G. Harding, one of the most controversial presidents. Um, and I once gave a presentation to the Rotary Club called Warren G. Harding, Not the Worst President Ever? Question mark. Kind of ripping off uh, Robert Strauss's book title there. Um, but we'll talk about Warren Harding. It's the 100th anniversary of his election from Marion, Ohio. Uh, and a really interesting uh, three years as president. And we've got multiple guests and great scholars coming on for that show. So look for that. Enjoy the conventions, everybody, in this presidential year. Thanks for listening to Season 5 of Ohio v. the World, our season about Ohio and the presidency. We'll see you next time. I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I've never done it. (laughs) Right.